You're listening to the That'll Preach podcast that is historically informed and slightly irreverent. That's what we aim to do. It's a very lofty goal. Actually, it's a very pathetic goal, but... Uh, I think it's know. pretty lofty. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's fun. That's fair. I'm captures Brian. us. Don't interrupt my intro. <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm with Paul, and uh, we are going to be continuing a series on old dead guys, looking at some of these early church leaders. I mean, I guess they're called the Apostolic Fathers. Yeah. That's the trendy name for them. But we're looking at the disciples <laughs> of the disciples. We're looking at the, the people who the apostles actually taught mm-hmm. and made leaders of the church. This is like the second generation of the, you know, this is after Acts. You know, you have Peter, Paul, James, they're establishing the church. And now this is the second generation kind of taking the baton and, and bringing the church down through the ages. Or which you we could often, call it the first generation after the apostles. There you go. Or the <laughs> second generation, or the, the first generation of the first people after, or the Or they're the not second. a generation, and we only count generations after them. That's right. Wow. That's so deep. I, I, told, I had like a brain fart right there. <laughs> I was like staring into you, but my soul had departed from my body. That was strange. That's what that smell is. Oh, well, yeah, (laughs) that's something else. No, so, but uh, I don't know. I think this, we we have this podcast because these are nerdy, cool things we like to talk about. And maybe you like hearing them too. But I think it's interesting that we're looking at the people who the apostles taught. Like they knew these guys. Mm -hmm. And we forget that the church is an entity. It's not like this static thing. The church is is an entity that has gone through time. So we have what we have because it was passed down by people before us people before them and generations before them. So we are building off the foundations of church history, of the tradition that's passed down to us. Sometimes you think a church just starts with a guy, he decides to like, you know, start something in his living room and then they... Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. <laughs> and that's weird. <laughs> and, but, but, but it's more than that. It's like, well, okay, that's the history of that particular church, mm-hmm. but what is their relation to the church in general in terms of the history of the church as a, a worldwide community right. and, and the evolution of the church through the ages. So, you know, I think a lot of the problems, we, we only focus on one local church and its history. And it's like Christianity, you know, is just sort of this idea that different people can sort of franchise and use for their... Like Chick-fil-A. Like Chick-fil-A or something. <laughs> versus Christianity is a community. The church is a community that has existed through the ages, locally in different places. It's not this pristine, perfect thing. But there's still a connectedness. There's a connectedness. There's an unbroken chain going all the way back. That we don't just have a connection to other churches, but we have a connection to the churches that have gone before us. Right. And that's important to connect to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but... First, we got to start with a hot take. Before the hot take, I want to remind you that if you're listening to this, you usually uh, get the That'll Preach podcast off of the Four Oaks Midtown podcast, but we've actually started our own separate channel. We're still affiliated with the Four Oaks Midtown podcast, but we are our own channel. So if you want to keep listening to this, you've got to actually subscribe to the That'll Preach podcast, and we'll have links in the show notes for that. But make sure you make that switch over uh, because we will be exclusively just putting content there if you want to keep following. But we're going to start with a hot take. Go for it. And uh, my hot take is this. I, I don't know if I've even used this one before. Maybe, Maybe I have. you have. Go for it. But uh, mm-hmm. I think Friends is overrated. Mm, I agree. I, 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 I had friends who watched Friends. Lies. You didn't have friends. I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I watched it by myself, crying. But Friends, I've seen some episodes... I think it's like a, a show that you can kind of shut your mind off and just mm-hmm. enjoy something stupid. 
But it's definitely not as funny as people say it is. No. And I don't get it. I think Seinfeld is way funnier. I know you agree with I me. I totally agree. I know. It's a smarter show. But Friends, it's just kind of, you know, it's okay. It's the poor man Seinfeld. It uh, tries to be Seinfeld. It's just not as good. Well, but they're, I mean, they're kind of... They're different ones. Well, I mean, well actually, I was just going to say they're different. They're one all of cynical. Yeah. They're all like yeah. romance obsessed. Say, one of them's about a bunch of people in the city trying to find love <laughs> and, and hooking up with people. And yeah. then I'm like, oh, that yeah. kind of is Seinfeld yeah. too. They're yeah. even in the same city, right? They are. They're both in New York, but one she does it incredibly. had a incredibly. crossover episode. Nah, it sounds terrible. Oh, it's like Marvel DC crossover, right. but it's yeah, 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 friends It would have made Seinfeld less fun. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I get like people are obsessed with friends and I know there's like a friends reunion. Yeah, there or was. something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like Jennifer Aniston's 54. Do you know she that? looks like she's 25. But it's crazy that I'm like, friends, they're in their 50s now. They're, yeah. they're, they're approaching senior citizenship. <laughs> I mean, maybe not that close. Not but, that, but, yeah. but it's crazy to think that We're people, well, people who exemplified youth in their time are now not young anymore. Are you just saying that people get older? I'm trying to say that in a sophisticated, <laughs> culturally relevant way to make myself sound. People who once embodied usefulness have now become tokens of senility. This sounds like a movie trip. People who once embodied... <laughs> do it in your Morgan Freeman voice. <laughs> people who... I can't do it right now. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. But you know this. I think we've talked about this before. I think Seinfeld is just way better. Friends is not great. Just go watch Seinfeld. I, uh, I I did watch some episodes. My roommate was watching it for a little bit, but Seinfeld, right? Yeah, Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. It's and great. I, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty good show. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't like watching old shows, like because of the laugh track. Well, like old comedy. No, specifically. I do like laugh track. Yeah, or just any old. Like even like I'm like, yeah, I should watch The West Wing. Everyone talks about The West Wing being amazing, but I'm like, is I don't it know. production quality? Yeah, I just know that it's in the '90s. That's early so I, weird. I just know. It's I just your know. inner filmmaker. Like it, it gives you a snobbiness. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. You can't appreciate the good story and like the the jokes and just go, well, that was great for that time. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I just need to sit down and watch it. But regardless, Friends itself, eh. Not the, not the, I mean, it's okay. I, I'm not a hater. I don't think it's a terrible I show. It I would terrible. laugh at scenes in Friends. But I just don't think it deserves the kind of cultural elevation that it currently gets. Especially Sounds, now. <laughs> that's the name of your new church. Cultural <laughs> elevation. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Don't Interesting. sue me. <laughs> but uh, let, let's get to the topic at hand. We're going to talk about today, we're talking about a an apostolic father. Remember, these are the people, the first generation after the apostles, mm-hmm. right? These are people who, in many cases, personally knew the apostles yeah. or were connected to people who personally knew the apostles. Right. And uh, there's three of them that we're going to look at. Well, we're going to look at three over three episodes. Right. Last time we looked at Polycarp. Mm-hmm. Who was connected Pokemon, to John, <laughs> the Pokemon. Who evolves into, yeah, Polyclamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he's, he's connected to the So Polycarp was... Discipled by the Apostle John. Yep. And probably grew up with parents... Who may have been evangelized by Paul. Who may have been evangelized by Paul, right. Uh, Clement, who we're going to look at today. Clement Clement of of Rome. Rome. Yeah. There's another Clement of Alexandria. We just harmonized We did. No, not really harmonized, Uh, but yeah, there you go. Clement of Rome. (laughs) There's another Clement. But this particular Clement we're looking at is uh, an early bishop, Mm -hmm. right? Now, I think Catholics would say he was... He's the first pope. well, That's what they say. After Peter. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. Something like that. But, yeah. but we ain't Catholic, so yeah. he's just a bishop. 
and we don't care what anyone thinks, except for what the Pope <laughs> thinks. But no, yeah. So, so Clement has a huge place in Catholic theology because they point to him as the successor of Peter. I would say they point in retrospect that he's the Pope. I don't know that if he was recognized as the Pope, but yeah. he was a significant figure in mm-hmm. the early church and certainly somebody who had a lot of sway and authority. Yeah. And we're going to see that in First Clement. First Clement is an epistle that he wrote to the Corinthians. Yep. So again, this is really cool because this is a we've got a, a church, the Corinthians. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we know who the Corinthians yep. are from the from the Bible from First and Second Corinthians. So it's nice to know this church keeps going, mm-hmm. and he's writing to this church who knew Paul, and I think Clement's even mentioned in the New Testament. There's some scholars say he might. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians four. He mentions a Clement. It's possible that he was talking about Clement of Rome, but. Other scholars say Clement was just so popular, it's like David. So there could have been just like a million Clements running sure. around. Sure. So ma- maybe it is, maybe, <laughs> maybe. it is. We don't but know. regardless, we know that Clement had a lot of sway in the early church, and he knew yeah. the apostles, and he knows the church at Corinth uh, that, that Paul planted. Well, he knew specifically other later church fathers tell us that he was discipled by Peter. And uh, there's also evidence from his letter to the Corinthians that he may have known Paul personally as well. Because he references the letter to the Corinthians, like, matter-of-factly. Don't you ever wish you could be like, I wish I could sit down and listen to Peter and Paul talk theology or talk about, you know, their views on the church or the millennium or, I don't know, different Mm -hmm. theological topics. (laughs) And it's like, man, Clement was there. He was there. He was sitting with Peter. Yeah. He read their letters. Mm -hmm. He knew them. And he actually, like, spent decades with these guys. Yeah. So he understood how they thought, their minds. So we can actually get... You know, these aren't scripture. First Clement isn't scripture. Right. But it is the distilled thoughts and ideas passed down from his personal relationship and discipleship with sure, yeah. those guys. I mean, it's kind of like when you hear, uh, you know, think of uh, R.C. Sproul, great, mm-hmm. you know, theologian. Um, and, you know, he's passed away. But but you would listen to one of the guys that he trained because you would know that they were influenced by R.C. Sproul and they probably knew things knew more about his theology than most people because they had an actual relationship over time. Well, we can kind of see that with Clement. Yeah. Right? He, he really understood mm-hmm. what the apostles taught. Well, he just, cared deeply about it. Like, like we saw with Polycarp's letter, Clement's letter is also just chock full of scripture. It almost got to the point where, this is going to sound terrible, but as I was reading through it, oh, I, I skipped, skipped over to Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, I know this part. <laughs> it's no, like but he does. just massive chunks right. of the Old massive. and New Testaments. And he yeah. just, I remember hearing one uh, textual critic, some New Testament scholar was like, you could reconstruct the entire New Testament if you had no manuscripts just from the quotes of the early church fathers. Right. And I thought that was an overstatement. It's Until true. reading Polycarp they and Clement, are. it is just 80% just quoting from right. the Bible. I'd it's encourage crazy. everyone listening to read Find a copy of First Clement. There's a lot of free ones online. Oh, yeah, you can just yeah. look at it. And just look at how, I mean, it's not just little verses. It's Massive co- chunks. copious yeah. amounts of scripture yep. that he's quoting mm-hmm. uh, from the Old and the New Testament. It's pretty cool. But uh, First Corinthians, I'm sorry, well, First Clement, to, this is a, a letter. <laughs> Ryan's becoming Catholic. Yeah, I know. This is a letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's long. I mean, there's 65 sections to it, or yeah. chapters. I mean, not. I mean, they're like uh, a paragraph. This is or a broken up lines. by yeah. someone later on, but it's a long letter. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we're just going to look at some of the interesting facets of it. Yeah. Maybe to whet your appetite if you want to look at it yourself. But basically, Clement writes this letter to the Corinthians because they're dealing with, surprise, <laughs> factions in the church. There's a bunch of uh, schisms. Again. Right. Yeah. And he, uh, he, he talks about how. Uh, he basically says, look, we were dealing with some hard stuff on our own, mm-hmm. so we weren't able to respond to your requests for help. So the church at Corinth, they have these divisions, and they go, 
we got to talk to Clement and his uh, elders, the elders, yeah. the bishops that are with him. So they have an appeal to an extra local church authority there. And then he says, um, now we can turn our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us. So you asked us about this thing, and especially to that shameful and detestable sedition, utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. So basically saying there's a couple, and it's usually always a little mm-hmm. couple people. A little group. Yeah. Who are very self-confident, and he's using this in tongue-in-cheek way, and very rash that they're kindling sedition, kindling division, yeah. and <clears throat> animosity toward one another. And it's ruining the reputation of the Corinthian church. I remember well, yeah. the church at Corinth mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians had a lot of problems. Yeah. Sexual immorality, mm-hmm. uh, super apostles, yep. people going against the true teaching of the apostles, uh, people saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Right, so they, were, right. they, they seem to have come a long way, and now Clement's going, you guys are backtracking yeah, again. Yeah, that's right. And, and they've even gone so far as to remove from their leadership certain elders that were appointed by the bishops and the right. other leaders. So they right. said, we don't want this leadership. Uh, we're going to remove them and put our own guys in. And Clement is basically responding to them. So here you have a very interesting model of church structure where the congregants weren't allowed to just remove their pastor because he was legitimately put there. And so Clement is saying, you can't just remove a holy man of God who's been ordained and other elders were involved in this decision. And so there's a kind of like top-down uh enforcement and authority structure that you see going on here. And this is something that he uses later on to sort of throw his weight around a little bit in a good way. I mean, he, Clement recognizes the authority that the bishops have over this congregation in the church of Corinth. Um, It's, it's interesting. He says uh, that the, um, that he talks about the state of the Corinthian church after this division And uh, he says that the worthless rose up against the honored, those of no reputation against those who were renowned, the Mm -hmm. foolish against the wise, and the young against those advanced in years. So it seems like a youth movement a little Mm -hmm. bit of these young guys who think they know it all going up against their elders. Yeah, yeah. Right? And uh, and he rebukes that, and he is very much against that. Um, And he then says in chapter 7, I want you to repent, right? We write unto you, not merely to admonish you, of your duty, but also to remind ourselves, for we are struggling on the same arena and the same conflict is assigned to both both of us. Now, it looks like they're also dealing with some struggle, maybe not the same thing, but sure, yeah. prior to it, he <laughs> talks about martyrs. Mm-hmm. So it looks like Clement was suffering in some way and, and he's going, look, we want you to repent, but also this is helpful for us yeah. to kind of uh, revisit the idea of, uh, of repentance. And, and he also mentions the uh, the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. So he he, he points which chapter at, is that? Oh, I don't know. I wasn't keeping track of that. That's all right. He does talk about um, Peter and Paul and other martyrs who've gone before, right. and, yep. and and yep. exhorts them to imitate. So basically, what we can infer is there's some persecution happening both in the church at large throughout the Roman Empire. He cites Peter and Paul, and then he talks about there are other local martyrs who have who have died. Um, and so this was a pretty tumultuous time in general for the Corinthian church. It's not a time where you can afford schisms and divisions and uh, basically you need unity for survival mode in a really hostile situation and context like this. So there's a very practical pastoral uh, tone to 
the the letter and, and what he's writing to right. the church as well. It's, it's chapter five, right? There he we talks go. about I knew it was there. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our eyes the illustrious apostles. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors. Mm-hmm. And when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee, and stoned. And after preaching both in the East and the West, he gained an illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world, and come to the extreme limit of the West, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. So mm-hmm. we see the martyrdom and the death of Peter and Paul. Yeah. And, uh, and then he talks about some women who were martyred as well. Yeah. And then he kind of goes back and says, look, you know, we're suffering. You guys need to be united. Because if you're going to endure this suffering that's coming, you need to be found faithful, mm. right? And then he actually goes to the Old Testament. He talks in chapter 9 about uh, Noah being faithful. Uh, and then he continues and talks about Lot, you know, and, and his folly, right? And then he talks about Rahab in chapter 12 and basically says, like, look, I mean, he goes to the Old Testament. And, you know, we talked about this in our last episode. The early church had a very strong sense mm of the authority of scripture. They yeah. recognized that the writings of the apostles were, and, and the writings of the gospels and the, and the scripture were not only worthy to be quoted, but, but came with authority. Yeah. And also the Old Testament writings were also authoritative for the New Testament right, church. Right, right. And you can, you can see the, the tone, and this is, again, we encourage you guys to read this, but you can see the tone with which Clement writes. He kind of has, he defers to Paul and Peter in a way that he doesn't think would be appropriate for himself. So he doesn't see his letter to the Corinthian church on the same level. Right. He doesn't view himself as an apostle. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he tells them, go back and read Paul's letter that he wrote to you guys. So he's encouraging them to read First and Second Corinthians right. as being sort of, this is going to help you. This is going to correct right. you. Go These are the problems. This. And so he does see himself on a different level, which is helpful um, that the church did recognize these writings of Paul and Peter and the apostles as being in a class qualitatively different than their own, which is, you know, we, we, people ask the questions of, well, how do we know which books belonged in the New Testament, which didn't? There's a kind of, from the earliest beginnings of the New Testament, you do see that these writings were treated with a special authority that wasn't given to the next generation right. after Clement and Polycarp. And we yeah. have to have a category of just because it's not scripture doesn't mean it's not helpful sure, and doesn't right. mean it's not <clears throat> truthful. Yeah. And so we can be edified by reading First Clement. Yeah. As long as you remember that it's not scripture. So there could be things that are wrong that we don't want to take, but... You know, like the, <laughs> did you see the weird phoenix? I part? was just about to mention the phoenix part. <laughs> That's so funny. In chapter 25, <laughs> basically, Clement says uh, that there's a sign that yeah. God has given us about the resurrection in the phoenix that yeah. lives in Arabia, right? And he believes that the phoenix is a real creature. That every 500 years it dies and resurrects. Right. Yeah. And then he talks about how uh, when its flesh decays, so the phoenix dies and then it well, when it's drawing near to death, it builds itself a nest of frankincense and myrrh and other spices. And then when it dies, uh, a worm is produced out of its flesh, which <laughs> which like eats the juices of the yeah. bird and then feathers sprout from the worm, I it, guess. It's so bizarre. And then it leaves <laughs> and, <laughs> and it flies away. And that's like the resurrection of the phoenix. First of all, it's not even, the phoenix is even being resurrected. It looks yeah. like it's, it's like... Or what worm? I don't know if he means worm as in like an actual worm or like a worm of the phoenix. Like a, I, a piece of the phoenix is regenerated. Or I have no idea. Very it strange. Was, it was bizarre. So definitely 
Every generation Glad has their cookie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I wonder if this was like the ancient church's version of like the Daniel fast or just like some some no kooky idea. random thing. But regardless, though, he doesn't use that as proof of sure, the resurrection. Right, right. He turns to scripture. Right. But he's again, just giving a metaphor. Right. Yeah. Right. And he talks about weird scripture one. says that you shall raise me up and I shall confess you. And he quotes Job. Uh, he talks about the resurrection. When he talks about, yeah, Jesus says the, what he gives is the actual, <laughs> the actual, Sorry. and he gives us, and he gives us the actual evidence for the resurrection or the, or the proof that we will be resurrected. He quotes Paul's letter to the Corinthians that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, ensuring that we will all be. So the Phoenix thing is sort of just like, maybe it's his attempt at like being like cultural apologetics. He knows his audience and he's giving a metaphor. Cultural apologetics. <laughs> That's your favorite thing to do, isn't it? It is. That's a, such Apologizing a... to culture. That's what it's all about. Or have culture apologize to me. Have cu- yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's, that's what you do. But uh, all this to say that the early church had a strong doctrine of the resurrection. Mm. I mean, I think Clement was born in 88 AD and lived till... He was born in 35. 35 AD. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he he died like around 100. Right. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So... I mean, he grew up basically right... He was born around right after Jesus died and right. grew up during the time exactly. of the Acts. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so he would have seen all this happen, mm-hmm. and uh, he's an eyewitness to this. Yeah. Right, so this is a guy who knew, again, Pentecost, all these things. He might not have been there, but he would have certainly heard about it, and it would right. have been from people who were like, yeah, that happened two years ago, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. So he's very close to these events. And so we're getting a picture of early Christianity, and we see, once again, a strong doctrine of the resurrection, which is really uh, important and central to the faith. Uh, we also see that we are justified not by our own works, but by faith. Yeah. Right? I saw that. He talks Ephesians 2 again. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he talks about um, the promise to Abraham, right, that your seed shall be as the star, stars of heaven. And he said all of these, all these promises... Um, were high, uh, therefore were highly honored and made great. All these people were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake or for their own works or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will, God's mm. power in them. Yeah. Right? And he says, and we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning, almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. So a strong view of grace, right? Mm-hmm. Not by our works, not by our wisdom, our understanding, or our godliness, not what we have wrought in holiness of heart, but what is it? It's faith. Yeah. Right? It's faith in Almighty God. Polycarp quotes that same exact passage, the Philpi- right. uh, Ephesians 2.8. Right. But uh, he doesn't stop there, though, because in chapter 33, he says, but let us not give up the practice of good works and love, right? What shall we do? Shall we become slothful and well-doing and cease from the practice of love? God forbid that any such course should be followed, but rather let us hasten with all energy and readiness of mind to perform every good work. For the creator and Lord of all himself rejoices in his works. So I, I love that illustration he uses where he says, that doesn't mean, just because we're saved by faith doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Right. It means that the doing comes out of love. Like if you're saved, God implants in you a love hmm. for him and for your neighbor that you're going to want to do good to other people. That's a mark of salvation. Yeah. And then he says that God himself loves to work, to, to do things, right? God himself loves to love. And so if we want to reflect him, we should love to love other people. Sounds way too practical, Brian. Way too practical. <laughs> 
One one thing that I noticed that was interesting was you sometimes you hear scholars say that the Trinity was a really late development or the early church didn't really have a robust doctrine of the deity of Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit, but a few different places throughout the letter, um, and again, I didn't take down all the references because I'm not as studious as you are, but he says that the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man glory in his might. So he's referring to the Holy Spirit as the author of the Old Testament text or, or, right. or speak through the prophets. Right. And then he later says, the scriptures that are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit, talking both about the Old Testament and Paul's letters. So the, the Holy Spirit has a divine role. And then he ends the letter for saying, uh, as God lives, as the Lord Jesus Christ lives, as the Holy Ghost lives. And he gives basically a Trinitarian formula there. Um, and so this is within the first century, this letter was written, where you have Christians talking about the work of God in a Trinity formulation. So it's not something that... Constantine came up with it's not a, uh, a doctrine from hundreds of years later. Right. This was language that the church was using from the first generation right. after the apostles. Another thing that they that we see is in its early development is is the order of the church, hmm. and uh, I think that's another interesting thing when you read these apostolic fathers how they understood the church yeah. and the relations of it. And we talked about that earlier when we talked about Clement being a bishop and having authority over this local congregation, um, but. In chapter 42, he, he says this, the apostles, listen to this link, the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, we are the first generation after the apostles. Yep. We learned this doctrine from the apostles who learned it from Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus Christ has done so from God. So God sent Christ, Christ sent the apostles, and the apostles have now entrusted this to us. Yeah. Christ therefore was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. And both these appointments then we are made, were made in an orderly way according to the will of God, right? And thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterward believe. So he's saying the apostles went through, preached in different countries and cities, mm -hmm. and then they appointed the fruit of their ministry by the Spirit were these bishops that they could leave behind to take care of the church, right? And... Uh, he says that this was something that uh, is not a new thing, but scripture says in a certain place, and I haven't been able to find this reference, which is interesting. Uh, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. I don't know what scripture reference that is. Um, interesting, yeah. So I've been hmm. looking for that. If anybody knows, you know, that'd be great. Let, uh, you know, holler at us. But Maybe he's quoting from like, Wisdom or could be. one could of be. the other, Shepherd of Hermas or something else. Right, right. And... and <clears throat> Well, he calls it scripture, though. Yeah. Maybe that's a hairy thing. I'd be interested to research that a little bit more. There's a couple places where he talks about, and this is one thing where, you know, we could talk about this a little bit, but Polycarp and Clement talk about wisdom and they talk about some other texts. Like he mentions Tobit, for example, and talks about some of the, the apocryphal books or the other books that were floating on the first century. And they do reference them with a kind of authority. Uh, later on, it becomes more clear that these books are not actually the same level as Scripture, but they were quoted authoritatively in the first couple generations. So, yeah. I mean, really, they could have been wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing yeah. we can say about these because they're not canonical. Yeah. Um, or they're quoting them just as, I mean, I don't know what they thought about when they sure, were writing, but they sure. could have just been quoting sure. as, you know, a secondary authority. I love how he says, it, it says it someplace. And it's like, <laughs> Bro, that was something else. That's what I do. Uh, chapter 44, uh, he talks about how 
And, and this is, you know, when you think about church history, it's like, okay, the apostles, Acts, got that. And then we go from Acts right to the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you forget that there was a process to get to where we are today. So what were the apostles thinking, right? So chapter 44, Clement says, our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. So he's basically saying the, the you know, the, the descendants who have the, like when the apostles die, who are going to be the new leaders of the church? And he knows that there's going to be contention over that, right? People claiming to say, well, I'm the new leader of this. You see the, the, the seed form of that in Corinthians when, when all these super apostles are claiming authority. In, in, in Philippians, Paul says there's these people preaching the gospel out of envy for me and all yeah, this stuff. Yeah. He starts to see these factions fighting against the apostles. So to, pervert, to, so to preserve true doctrine, Clement says that, uh, that they gave instructions that when they should fall asleep, one should die, they should die. Other approved men should succeed them in their ministry, right? We are of opinion, therefore, that those appointed by them, the apostles, or after by other eminent men, with the consent of the whole church, mm -hmm. that's interesting, so the whole church has to receive them as well, Yeah. and who have blamelessly served the flock of Christ, so there's a character qualification, and a humble, peaceable, and disinterested spirit, and for a long time possessed the good opinion of all, cannot be justly dismissed from the ministry. Hmm. Right? For our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who have blamelessly and wholly fulfilled its duties. So he's responding again, the church at Corinth kicked out a bunch of bishops and elders mm -hmm. that were good dudes. Yep. And he's saying, number one, that's a sin because the apostles wanted to handpick who their successors would be right. and other men of, of great renown. And the whole church recognized them. Right. And they also had the character traits to fill that office. And they had a, a long track record of having a good opinion. So it's not just this guy's a bishop, boom. No, these were seemingly older guys with a track record who are unjustly being thrown out of the church. And this is yeah, against yeah. true doctrine. This is against what the, because the apostles knew the next generation. It's not just you and your Bibles and you figure it out yourselves. We need actual teachers and fathers of the faith passing this down through the generations. And we need to make sure that these guys are the real deal. Basically, it was a church mutiny. It was. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's saying, look, you kick these guys out. These are the guys that Paul wanted. Right. Yeah. Right. We're mm -hmm. the guys that Paul appointed. Yeah. Right. So if you have a problem, you have a problem with Paul. Yeah. Right? And the fact that they couldn't point to any moral failings or any theological failings right. shows that they were, I mean, he, the whole letter is him talking about envy and jealousy and overconfidence and arrogance. So these are just some young bucks, really, who were like, right. we want to take these positions for ourselves. We're envious of the glamour of the positions. And Clement says, no, these are men who are faultless. They are, he talks about some of them had been martyred already. And so these are the ones who are still persevering and, and carrying out the duties of their offices. And so they need to be respected as such. And we might not like this <clears throat> because we have an aversion to authority. I think especially now there's a oh, very, yeah. very oh, much yeah. a distrust of authority, maybe rightly so, maybe not. But regardless, authority is inescapable in the sure. church. Mm -hmm. And Clement is appealing to authority. Yeah. He's basically saying, look, this is part of the church's understanding that the apostles had a plan for how they wanted the, the true teaching of the church to be passed down through the generations. Um, you ready for this? I want to blow your mind with something. Do it. I found the quote where he calls the, where he says the deacons in faith, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it's actually from the Old Testament and he changes the words a little bit. But in Isaiah 60, 17, 
in the Septuagint, in the Greek, God says, I will make your overseers of peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Wow. And so he takes that and applies it to bishops and deacons. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's very go. interesting. It, it, he says, as it's found in the scripture somewhere, yeah. right? he just forgets, but it's well, from Isaiah 60. And Clement is so biblical. He loves mm-hmm. the scriptures. In yeah. chapter 45, he, he says, um, he, he talks to the Corinthians and he says, you are fond of contention, brethren, and full of zeals about things, full of zeal about things which do not pertain to salvation. That's convicting. And he says, look carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. Observe that nothing of an unjust or counterfeit character is written in them. So you see the trustworthiness of Scripture, yeah. right? There's nothing mm-hmm. unjust or counterfeit written in them. And not only that, the most important thing is he says, I want you to read the Scriptures. Why? Because they are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit hmm. of God uttered these words. Yeah. And so he sees, and he doesn't call his own stuff Scripture, but he recognizes that this, things that he's quoting, they are uh, scripture. Did you notice that there's actually a couple places where he quotes from Hebrews? Really? Which is interesting because, okay. I mean, that's one of the books that you hear is like disputed in some of the early councils and people are not sure if it's authentic or inspired, but yeah, he quotes Hebrews 11 when he says, let us be imitators of those who go in goatskins and sheepskins, uh, or those who in goatskins and sheepskins went about proclaiming the coming of Christ. And then also he quotes Hebrews 1.3, when he talks about Christ being the very brightness of his majesty, so much greater than the angels he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than them. Um, so yeah, here he, he seems to think Hebrews is authoritative that yeah. early on. I wonder if yeah. he knew who wrote it. <laughs> uh, he also mentions in 47, now we want to kind of tailor back to um, the real life situation that he's dealing with. Hmm. He goes to the Corinthians and, I mean, if he's dealing with factions in Corinth, what do you think he's going to mention, right? First and second yeah, Corinthians. Yeah, and he yeah, says, yeah. and he says, uh, take up the epistle of the, of the blessed apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? So he's talking about first and second Corinthians. Truly under the inspiration of the spirit, notice that uh, Paul was under the inspiration of the spirit. Yeah. He wrote to you concerning himself and mm. Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties have been formed among you. He's directly quoting or referring yep. yeah, to yeah, 1 yeah. Corinthians, right? Right down to the people, people were forming factions around. Yep. And he says, look, remember what Paul said when he was inspired by the spirit of God to write these letters? So the inspiration of scripture, mm. but also referring back to a real event under the apostle Paul. And he says to them, basically, you guys are worse than the Corinthians in that generation. You guys are terrible. Yeah. Like you guys have taken, it was one step forward, five steps back, right? So you need to go read First and Second Corinthians again and correct yourself. You guys are just making the same mistake to a, to a greater extent. Hmm. And uh, that's the way he views it, right? That's the way he understands it, that the, the unity of the church is important. So he cares so much about the unity of the church, right? And then he says, let us then also pray for those who have fallen into any sin that meekness and humility may be given to them so that they may submit not unto us, but to the will of God. All right, so he says, look, you know, pray for those who have sinned. Yep. <clears throat> uh, rec- you know, obviously they know who has sinned. They know these people. And he's saying he wants them to submit. Hmm. But not to us, it's to God. It's not this authoritarian power grab, it's to God. So there's, 
a, a vision of authority underneath the umbrella of Christ, right? Hmm. So a very strong understanding of the local church, of the relationship of the church to one another, and of how authority works in the church. I love how he ends the letter with a massive prayer. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like five paragraphs. And then he says, uh, send back speedily to us in peace and with joy. These are messengers yeah. to you. Claudius, Ephibus, and Valerius Beto with Fortunatus. Fortunatus. <laughs> right, so he's, and you think about this, he's writing a letter and he's like, well, it might be a couple months before we hear back from them. Mm. So he's like, I want to hear what's happening, how you guys are doing. Think about that now. We have such instant communication. Yeah. It took a long time for them to know what was going on. Right. You can sense the pastoral anxiety he has over this church that the Apostle Paul shared. Sounds terrible. But, uh, yeah. Well, mm. A great look into the early church. I think it just makes it more real. You're just like, again, oh, yeah. these are real people in real situations who knew the actual apostles. These were yep. actual people. You know, sometimes you think, did Paul even exist? Is Luke just some pseudonym for what? No, these guys were real. People knew them. Right, they're historical figures, and uh, Christianity is a historical faith. Not just that it has a history, but that it is history. It is an ongoing, unfolding manifestation of God's purposes in the world. And uh, so this is what we hope to give people. I want people to hear this and be like, man, there's some stuff outside the Bible that's really helpful, that can help flesh out and give us an appreciation for the history of the church, because it's our history, right? We are the church. These are our forefathers, our brothers and sisters throughout the generations who have given their lives for the gospel. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week continuing our series on old dead guys. And uh, share this with your friends. We'd love to uh, spread the word about this. See you guys next week.